That is great. Well, we are here 502 years after uh, All Saints Day in Wittenberg, Germany. Many people were coming and enjoying the feast. They were there to see Martin Luther's 95 Thesis calling for discussion on practices and abuses of the church. They took them off the door. They took them to the brand newly invented printing press with movable type. And within two weeks before internet and TV, decent roads, those things had spread 700 miles. Isn't that interesting? God's timing on stuff. That until we're ready to hear, until um, when the timing is ripe, it's like just a big, fat, juicy peach. That's just what I picture. And that's kind of what was going on. And Europe caught fire, and it set in motion this great reformation, which, remember, wasn't something that people joined. It was what was going on in people's hearts. And after the fact, they looked back and said, what the heck is going on? And that's when they call it the Great Reformation. You know, it's interesting because there's some people who, who look at a theory, and it's a little bit sketchy, but um, Phyllis Tickle, who is uh, one of the people that was the religion editor, um, she talks about kind of every 500 years, there's a big swell. And if you go back to the Jesus event, you can even go before, 500 years before the Jesus event, was the destruction of the Jewish temple. 500 years before that was the building of the temple. And then G the, the Christ event, 500 years after that was sort of the decline and, and splintering of Rome in 500 AD. In 1000 AD, it was when the East and the West split apart, and that was the Great Schism. Then 500 years after that, in the 1500s, is the Great Reformation, and then that means we're kind of at a time right now, some scholars look at the 9-11 event, September 11th, 2001, as kind of a, a peak of a new thing going on. And they're, they're calling it the, help me out, somebody, the great, no, it's a flattening of Christianity where the hierarchies kind of go away and the house church movement is really big. I'll think of it, it's a biology term that describes beehives. Or no, it describes anthills. Beehives are still run by the boss, the queen bee. But anthills are not run by the queen ant. They're run by just this, um, the workers. And everybody sort of gets a sense of what's going on. So, it set into motion the Great Reformation a new understanding of theology, it changed the world. The salvation we find and we live our lives by is in faith alone, under the authority of scripture alone, given by God's grace alone, through Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. And it's this callback to the Christ event. And I just have to keep saying, what if the healthiest thing that you could do was to reform your life today, as in a great reformation. In the midst of your brokenness, at work, at home, in your relationships, think what this reformation of God could do, calling us back to our roots. And these are the truths that set the great reformation into motion. And this truth sets Martin Luther into motion. He said it this way, I must, I must listen to the gospel. It tells me not what I must do, 
but what Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has done for me. I must listen to the gospel. It tells me not what I must do, but what Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has done for me. One of the most powerful um, talks I have heard in the last two years, probably the most powerful talk, is by Johnny Erickson Tata. It was from the fall of 2017. It's on YouTube. And she talks about why, why, Lord, why am I a quadriplegic for 50 years now? You know, when she was 17, she went diving in the Chesapeake Bay, hit her head on a rock, and almost died of drowning there. But her sister saw her and rescued her. And she went to all kinds of healing services. And, and then she was reading from Mark chapter 1 where Jesus uh, heals Peter's mother-in-law, and then they're bringing everybody for healing. And it went late into the night. And the next morning, the disciples couldn't find Jesus. And then when they finally found him in a lonely place, as he went off to, what happened then was that um, they said, Lord, all these people are back, and they've brought more people. And Jesus said, let's go back and heal them. No, Jesus didn't say that. He said, let's go to the next town to preach the gospel, for that is why I have come. You know, in our individualism and in our um, self-centric culture, we think Jesus has come for us and for this physical kind of a healing. But he was going after the souls of women and men. And he said, let's go to the next town and preach the gospel. For that is why I've come. Don't get that confused in the midst of all of the hype and all of the media online kind of stuff. He's come for the preaching of the gospel. And Johnny Erickson Tata said this, and it gave me chills. She said, Jesus wasn't, yes, Jesus is interested in our physical healing. But he's going after a much bigger prize. And that's the healing of our soul and the salvation of our souls. After all, Jesus healed the man with the withered hand and he healed blind eyes. But Jesus said, if that same hand causes you to sin, what are you supposed to do? Cut it off. And if that eye causes you to sin, what are you supposed to do? Pluck it out. You don't see too many one-eyed, one-handed Christians going around. But that's how serious he took it. So Martin Luther said this brilliant thing. It tells, I, I must listen to the gospel. It tells me not what I must do, but that's what we're, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? But Martin Luther said, the gospel tells me not what I must do, but what Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has done. What we think we need to do, 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 do has been done, 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 done by Jesus. And we're going to look at that in a lot of verses. But I want to back up again and say, what was the Reformation about? Indulgences, the, the church kind of abusing its power, going for worldly power instead of the spiritual power that, that God has called us to? And, when I, and we're not just pointing fingers at the Catholics. This was all of us, at least with, of European descent. Indulgences, was it about purgatory? Was it about the authority of the Pope? 
Was it about education? Was it about Martin Luther? And yes, those are all surface issues. I'm hearing a clicking, and I'm not sure what it is, if it's my wire. It's the cord. It's the cord. I'll try not to dance around so much. Can we cheer for Jesse, who's making this whole thing possible? He's my hero. Yes, those things all got dealt with. But what the Reformation is about, the answer is simple, and it's the Sunday school answer. Jesus. The Reformation was all about Jesus. Specifically, the Reformation was about Jesus Christ's death on the cross as our only source of forgiveness, our only source of life, our only source of salvation. Luther said the cross alone is our theology. The cross is our theology. Another way to say this is what uh, the Latin word solus Christus, or Christ alone, saves us. Salvation through Jesus Christ alone is the heart of the Reformation. All the practices, all the teachings that Luther and the Reformers wanted to change were problematic. Did I just cut out now? Sorry to be high maintenance. There it goes. We'll just try that. We'll go for it. <laughs> well, now that we've named it, we can ignore it, right? One time I was preaching at Dexter, and there was this cardinal, and we have glass windows that aren't stained glass, and it was attacking the window all morning long. So at the, every service, I'd have to say, yes, we know there's a cardinal attacking the window. So you name it, so everybody can then just put it out of their mind and focus on what we need to focus on. So salvation is through Jesus Christ. It's the heart of the Reformation. All the practices, all the teachings that Luther and the other reformers like Ulrich Zwingli and John Calvin, we can't not name those guys. Ulrich Zwingli lived in Switzerland, but again, he lived too close to the Italians and they got him. And he and Luther did actually meet face to face. And even though they were saying a lot of the same things, they couldn't quite come to agreement. John Calvin came a little bit after Luther. And then the Reformation in England um, with Thomas Cranmer and uh, Thomas More uh, and King Henry VIII and that whole mess um, happened a little bit later than Martin Luther as well. So, but what happened was in many cases... Um, the thing that was problematic that really um, Luther named and it launched the Reformation was all the practices and the teachings um, wanted to change because they got Jesus wrong. They either added to his work or the things took away from his work. And they replaced Jesus' works, the gospel, with human works. In many cases, people were told they had to do something in addition to what Jesus had told them, had done for them. Whether it was an outward action like indulgences or fasting or pilgrimages or an inward disposition, people were told that the works of Jesus weren't quite enough. Yes, it was all through Jesus in a way, but they had to cooperate with Jesus and they had to do their part 
in order to be saved. But listen, one of the modern definitions of what a cult is, is it's salvation through faith in Christ plus something else equals a cult. So you got to listen carefully to what some of the messages are. Salvation by faith through grace in Jesus Christ plus speaking in tongues, you, that if you have to do that or you're not saved or you have to join our particular church or you're not saved. You know, in other cases, the reformers fought to keep others from taking away what Jesus was still doing through his word and through the sacraments. Some of the more radical reformers taught Jesus' body and blood weren't given or received in the Lord's Supper, or Jesus didn't really save through holy baptism. They taught that the sacraments were about obeying Jesus' command rather than receiving Jesus' gifts. Luther insisted that these sacraments were also Christ's work alone in giving forgiveness and life and salvation. We are saved by grace alone, but this grace that we receive from the Father comes to us through Jesus Christ. We're going to dive into some verses. Yesterday we looked at John 1, 17. The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Remember, it's not grace or truth. Like, oh, we're not getting this right. Well, grace. And we, we got so sloppy with grace as though grace means we can live under, below the law of God rather than grace helps us to live beyond the law of God. I heard Erwin um, McManus describe the Ten Commandments as like the, the basement of what it's like to live in a civilized society that honors God. Like, don't murder each other. Don't commit adultery. Like, if you can't do that, but the problem is we think grace allows us to live beneath the law rather than beyond the law. For example, Jesus saying, if you look at somebody with evil and call them, you idiot fool, that's as good as committing murder against them in your heart. So we receive this grace and this blessing from the Father only because of Jesus' death on the cross in our place. We are saved by grace alone, but our faith is merely receiving all of the saving works of Jesus as a gift. Romans 3 says this, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And it needs to say for all who believe because if Jesus loves you infinitely, if I love you infinitely and you say, I don't love you and I'm going to move as far away as I can, I can get to Phoenix, Arizona to get away from you. If I truly love you, am I going to show up in Phoenix? I'd want to. But if I know that you cannot stand the sight of me, I will love you. But I'm not going to be unloving toward you by showing up on your doorstep in Phoenix. Does that make sense? No stalking allowed. Yeah. You notice that the prodigal son's dad didn't run out to the pigsty. And that's really hard when, 
when you think about some of our adult children and some of the challenges that, that some of us face with them. And in this way, hell exists out of the love of God. If, if you truly do not want to be with me, I'm going to give you a place not to be with me. Hell is the absence uh, of God out of my love for you. Because God's not going to disavow your personhood. If you truly, 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 truly don't want to be with God. C.S. Lewis says the gates of hell are locked, but they're locked from the inside. In other words, people want to keep God out of their lives. It's a fascinating, fascinating thing. No, God, I would rather have this thing than you. And they don't start out that way, but bit by bit by bit, we get that way. It's a, a whole new understanding. Just like me not violating your, your desire to stay away from me, I can still love you. Not in the way I want to. But if you truly desire not me, I've got to not be there. If we truly desire not God, to me, that's the reason why hell would exist. Kind of random, isn't it? Our theology flows from Scripture alone, but Scripture is trustworthy because it is about Jesus from beginning to end. Jesus told his disciples in Luke 24, verse 44, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. We read that last night, didn't we? We listen to God's word in the scriptures because there we hear Jesus speaking to us. So as we're going into this 502nd year of the beginning of the Reformation. It's easy to get caught up in all the historic events or the personalities, the literature of the 1500s. Our challenge is to see Jesus Christ as the heart of the Reformation and the heart of our teaching and our practice still today. Let's look up Acts chapter 4. We're going to shed some more light on this. Verse 10, Acts 4, verse 10. So this is Peter and John, these fishermen who were uneducated, in front of the Sanhedrin, which was basically like the city council of Jerusalem. That's who the Sanhedrin were. We'll start at verse 8. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers, elders of the people, if we're being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Isn't that interesting? You know, every time a, a Christian athlete wins something. The Christian athlete is trying to say, it's by the name of Jesus. But that's not what the sports interviewers want to hear about, is it? They want to hear about the power that, that you got 
and, and they want to talk about the game and they want to talk about the kick and they want to talk about the healing. They don't want to talk about it. it's just in Jesus' name. So they're saying it's in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth whom you crucified but whom God raised from the dead that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone you builders rejected which has become the capstone. Do you know that's Psalm 118 and that's verse 22. And you're more familiar with Psalm 118 than you realize Because it says, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. That's literally Psalm 118, verses 22, 23, and 24. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this. It's marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad at it. It is so connected. And here is Peter sharing this verse that the Sanhedrin would have been aware of. And then look what he says in verse 12. Of, now I'm back in Acts chapter 4. Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. Flip over to 1 Timothy chapter 2. Verse 5. Actually, we're going to back up to verse 3. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. I think that's part of where John Wesley got his understanding of prevenient grace. God, by God's very nature, is good and wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Boy, did that help my confidence in faith sharing. When I realized the person I met at the gym, the person I met at the grocery store, the people in my family, God is already at work in them. God is going before them, before me, to reach them. So I'm just joining God where God's already at work. If God's brought that person into my life, that means God's at work in the fact that he's connected us. It was, it, just for me personally, um, Dexter is the kind of this little Mayberry town. It's right next to Ann Arbor on the west side of Ann Arbor. And Everybody in Dexter thinks, well, there's no 20-somethings in Dexter because they all just go to Ann Arbor or Ipsy. Nobody in their 20s lives in Dexter unless they get married younger and have good jobs and can buy a house. And I kept meeting all of these kids in relation to how old I am at, at the gym, the wellness center. And pretty soon I met enough of them and we got into some conversations and a lot of them knew my kids and they knew what my job was and I was able to start saying hey if we got a group of 20 something guys together would you be interested to talk about life to talk about careers talk about relationships talk about God 
kind of said it in that order, not to smokescreen them, but I mean, they knew that was coming. <laughs> and we got this group of 15 young men, and we met for two years, and then we opened it up to girls. So we weren't the He-Man Women Haters Club anymore. That's the Little Rascals. That's from the Little Rascals. And so um, it's become this awesome ministry. We baptized four 20-somethings just um, two weeks ago in the river behind our church. Yeah. And their testimonies. And what was so powerful is the level of pain that they were dealing with that was leading them to some horrible choices in their life. And, and this brokenness and this loneliness. Because Jesus, the Son of God, wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God. I'm back in 1 Timothy 2, verse 5. For there is one God and one mediator between God and people. The man, Jesus Christ who gave himself as a ransom for all men. The testimony given in its proper time. And for this purpose, I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. And a teacher of the true faith to the Gentiles, all the non-Jewish people. There's one God and one mediator between God and people, the man, Jesus Christ. And now we're going to spend some time in Hebrews. First and second, Timothy, Titus, and Philemon. Hebrews and the book of James. Hebrews, we're going to start in chapter 2. Hebrews, we don't know exactly who the person was who wrote Hebrews. Um, written to the 12 tribes scattered around to the Jewish Christians. And the theme of Hebrews is Jesus Christ brings us the superior way. The whole book of Hebrews is Jesus is the superior one to Moses, the superior way. He is our Sabbath. He's the superior one. So Hebrews chapter 2. And we're going to start in verse um, 14. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. He's the perfect sacrifice. He's the superior sacrifice. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too, Christ too, shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. And free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he may, might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. Boy, what an answer to the loneliness epidemic that, um, that doctors in the medical field have named. 
he was, had to be made like us, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Flip one page past that to Hebrews 4, in verse 14. This is right after he's talking the word of God is a living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. And then in verse 14, it says this, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. I want to just say there, um, he's, we're like, yeah, right, he was God. But he was fully human. And if you think about it, we, we think... Um, we resist, we resist, we resist, we resist, we resist, and then we sin and give up. Jesus resisted all the way in every time. In other words, he went through our point of pain, our point of whatever that was that we gave into, but he never gave in. In every way in every temptation he went further than we could ever go and thus he understands better than we could ever know what that temptation is like we think well i suffered because i gave in and sinned yes but it's it's like the dark side of the suffering that he went through every sin to the breaking point, but he didn't break. And he went on suffering in that way beyond that sin, beyond our giving up or giving in on it. He knows he can, he is not unable to sympathize with our weakness. But we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. It is all about Jesus Christ, fully sufficient for our salvation and for our living today. Did you ever think that your eternal life has already begun? Your eternal life began the moment that you accepted the transfer of your life for his. We come to a moment of death, but, but when you receive Christ, you can look back on your life and see how God began working, bringing you to this point. People who never received Christ, C.S. Lewis points this out, they look back on their lives and it's always been hell. It just depends which way you've chosen. We think we can go through life without having to ultimately choose, don't we? But when we choose, when we choose Jesus and we receive his salvation, that salvation begins working its way backwards 
in our lives and bringing healing. Because, you know, Hebrews um, 13.5 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and yes, for, forever. In other words, he was there. When we receive him, whether we're 80 years old or 60 or 20 or 10, he works backwards. He works in both directions for our salvation. And we can then see how even the difficulties and suffering that we might have had, even as victims, God was in the midst bringing us through to this moment of salvation. It doesn't make the bad things that happen to us good. But it enabled him to bring good out of the bad. Don't just say it's all good. That's a disastrous error. But God could work in the bad to bring good. And our eternal life begins now. A whole new way to think about life, death, new life in Christ because of the completed work of Jesus. so that we can approach God's throne of grace with confidence. So we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Because we're living in enemy-occupied territory. But the, the true king has arrived in the country. It's just not everybody knows it. And the salvation is, is now and not yet. It's now but not yet complete. The freedom fighters have landed. And if you've received Jesus, you are a part of that. But there's still work to be done here. Take a look at Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. We're diving into Hebrews here. And this is going back to Melchizedek, who is the priest that Abraham met, a priest of the living God that Abraham tithed to. Very mysterious. He's only mentioned uh, in Psalms one time. But look at verse 25. No, look at verse 23. We'll start. And he's remember, he's talking to Hebrews, and the temple was everything. You know, have you seen pictures of the Holy Land? Have you seen pictures of the um, Hasidic Jews and everybody at the Wailing Wall? The Wailing Wall isn't a part of the temple wall. The Wailing Wall is just the leftover wall of the big mound that the temple sat on. But it's the closest that the Jews can get to the original temple. It was all about the temple. And so they go there, and they're praying for the restoration of Israel. But the temple was such a big deal that even the, the wall, the one remaining wall of the mount that the temple sat on, and then was destroyed, and then was rebuilt, and then was destroyed, is so sacred to them. Here's... Um, Here's the word to these Hebrew Christians. And you know the Jews need Christ. And you know the Muslims need Christ. 
and the Hindus need Christ and the secularists need Christ every bit as much as the Christians need Christ. Remember, being a Christ follower doesn't make you better than anybody else. It just makes you better than you once were. So, Hebrews chapter 7, in, uh, starting in verse 23. Um, now, there had been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. I guess it would. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely. Other translations might say, say the word forever. He is able to save completely and forever those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, but he hung out with them, didn't he? And exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priest, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. You know, a lot of people wonder about the cross event, Christ on the cross, and how could that be past, present, future? But if God exists outside the sphere of time, we have to divide time because we're in the middle of the sphere of time into three parts, right? Past, present, future. But if God exists outside the sphere of time, that means he's eternally present. That's where the Yahweh, when God comes to Moses and says, I am who I am. And that means the cross of Christ is eternally present. For every sin you ever committed, for every sin you're committing, for every sin you will commit. And he's leading us out of that because of his eternal presence. Doesn't just mean he's on a, on a long line waiting. He's eternally present. No, he, it's, it's three-dimensional. The sphere of time. You know the Old Testament writers talk about the spheres. And that's partly it. Now, it says Jesus is able to save completely and forever those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. He's able to save completely those who come to God through him. Have you ever thought about live, you now live your life in Christ? I often sign my emails in Christ, Matt. Because I am in Christ, and out of Christ, I don't want to go. I am in love. Out of love, I do not want to go. I am in peace. Out of peace, I don't want to go. You are in Christ it's easy to think of, I'm in love, because we use that phrase. I'm in love. Out of love, I don't want to go. But there is no love apart from Christ. There is no peace apart from Christ. So if you want peace for someone, you want Christ for them. 
If you want love for someone, you want Christ for them, and you can't shove it down their throats. We've got to be smarter than that. <laughs> Blameless and pure, such a high priest truly meets our need, one who is holy, Blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. That's why we say in Christ alone. He's the one foundation on which we can stand. Take a look at, at 1 John chapter 2. Not the gospel of John, 1 John. Right after First and Second Peter. Actually, we're going to back up. We're going to start at the beginning of 1 John. I love this book. That which was from the beginning. Where have you heard that before? The Gospel of John, chapter 1. Where else have you heard that before? Genesis 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard which we've seen with our eyes. Remember, John was the last of the 12 disciples left alive. He was a young man when Jesus walked on the earth and was in ministry with him. He was a cousin of Jesus. Not John the Baptist, who was also a cousin. Everybody was cousins. This is a different cousin. And, and remember, this John, and, and they call this the apostle of love. When he was with Jesus... He was one of the sons of thunder. You know why? Because Jesus and the disciples were traveling through Samaria, and they wanted to stay in a Samaritan village. And the Samaritans said, no, get out of here, you Jews. And John and his brother James said, Jesus, do you want us, call, you want us to call down lightning and strike them? Jesus is like, you morons. What are you thinking? And then John was the one who came and said, Jesus, there's another dude out here and he's preaching and he's teaching and healing in your name. Do you want us to get rid of him? And Jesus is like, you morons. What are you thinking? He's doing this in my name. He's not against us. John was a crazy man when he was young. And yet he looks back and he can't even use his own name in his writings as an old man. Think of everything that he'd seen. The rise of the church, he was there. The first arrests, he was there. The stoning of Stephen. The killing of James, the first of the 12 apostles who, who was martyred. He had seen Mark's gospel. He had seen Matthew and Luke's gospel. He had seen the birth of the church. He had seen the scattering of, of the disciples, of of the Christians when the persecution began. And here he was, a lonely old man, writing. And he had seen some of the, the misunderstandings start to make their way into the church. And so he's writing this to second and third generation Christians. And so in this letter, he's addressing some of that, that which was from the beginning. He's reminding him Jesus wasn't just born 2,000 years ago, or in his case, whatever, 60, 70, 80 years ago. He's saying he is one with God. In the beginning was the word, the logos. The meaning behind words was there. And he was God. 
So in his, in his letter, he says, that which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, and he's the last living person on earth to know Jesus like that as he's writing this. The only one that wasn't martyred, he was exiled but not killed for his faith, which we've looked at and with our hands have touched. Remember, some people were trying to make Jesus just this spirit being guy. And he's saying, no, our hands touched him. That we proclaim concerning the word, capital W, that's that logos, special Greek word again, the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it, we testify it, we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. Interesting, he doesn't say so that you may have fellowship with him. There is something so vital about the call to gather with other believers. We proclaim this to you so you may have fellowship with us and our fellowship Then he says, is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus. And we write this to make our joy complete. This is the message we have heard from him, and we declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. Right there is a mic drop moment. Because here's John saying, God is light. In him is no darkness at all. In other words, we tend to think about God is is light And then we all kind of radiate out from God and we get a little dimmer the further away we are, right? But we say, oh, it's all good. John's saying, no, there's light and there's darkness. There's truth and there's falsehood. It's not just we've all radiated out, but it's it's kind of a new agey sort of thought that's crept into a lot of our thinking. Because we're like, well, if God is light, and God is the source of all there is, then we all just sort of are either closer to God and we're a little brighter or, <laughs> or not, or we, wrote, we radiate out from God, but it's all one, right? But John is saying God is light. In him is no darkness, no dimness, no half-truth kind of stuff. He's saying there's light and there's dark. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet we walk in the darkness, we lie. We do not live by the truth. In other words, so there's of God and there's not of God. We don't like to parcel things out like that, do we? He says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with, again, with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Now, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We don't just have a dim view of the truth. We have false. We don't like to think in dichotomies so much anymore in the United States in the 21st century. We like to think it all sort of radiates in and out. But John is saying, no, there's light and there's dark. There's truth and there's non-truth. There's of God and not of God. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in us. In other words, the whole Jesus sacrifice on the cross for us would be completely irrelevant. And there's churches and pastors that say 
Yeah, it was a good example. It was a model of love, which it is, but that's so not the complete picture. Then look at what John says. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours also, but for the sins of the whole world. That's who Jesus is. What I'd like to do is take three or four minutes and I want you to turn to a neighbor or two and I want to get back to what the, ref, the reforming that took place 500, starting about 500 years ago in a way. And the question is this. Based on these scriptures, based on any light that's um, being shed, two questions. What have you added to Jesus' work in your own mind? In other words, if it is by, in Christ alone, what have, I, what have I added? Like, what do I got to do? Or what do I kind of make my litmus test if someone is there or not? What have you added to Jesus' work in your own mind? And second, a second one, it's a similar question. What are you tempted to add in your mind to Jesus' completed work of salvation? Or what have you diminished? What have you taken away from Jesus' work? Is there something that you've added in your mind to the completed work of Christ alone as you think about what this means for us today? Ready? Or what are you tempted to add? Ready, go. Be brave. Feel free to move around if you need to scoot towards somebody else. He says enough true stuff. Mm-hmm. 
because they're like, oh, we can make our own electric camper. Yeah, that was good that you were that, that you tracked that and you were like, wait a minute. One minute warning. Mm-hmm. It was interesting to say the least. Yeah. Glad to be out. That's awesome. I'm now at Phoenix Center Church in Fenton. Very cool. That's just an hour from me. That's awesome. Fenton. 45 minutes. Yep. Almost. Maybe a little more. And then I actually used to work at the Cherry Republic in Frankenwood since you probably know the Cherry Republic in Ann Arbor. Yeah. My daughter's working at the, the home base up at up north for an internship this summer. Here's a really good a really good point is the the work of the Holy Spirit in the midst of all of this the Holy Spirit um, opens our minds to God the Holy Spirit works in our hearts to be lining us up with the mind of Christ and takes our requests to God the Father and God the Son the Holy Spirit um, one of his big roles is to glorify the Son and glorify the Father that's why the Holy Spirit's so elusive sometimes. It's because the Holy Spirit seeks to glorify the other members of the Godhead Trinity rather than pointing people to himself. And so there is very much the role of the Holy Spirit enabling us to, um, uh, to become aware of our need for Christ. Yeah, in a way, the Holy Spirit is close to being synonymous with the grace of God that woos us, that calls us, that redeems us, that um, justifies us, that sanctifies us to make us more fully in love with God. The anointed one, the one full of the spirit that the, that the Old Testament, um, the Hebrew scriptures prophesy and of course, everyone thought it was going to be to lead us to freedom, the physical reality of freedom, versus all the stuff going on on the inside that leaves us enslaved, no matter who is running the country. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Did I just say that? I meant. <laughs> That's how altar call quick. Moving on. Here's the thing. You know, Jesus spoke words from the cross. And the first words that we have recorded from the cross in Luke 23, verse 33, is, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Father, forgive them. His first words from the cross were a prayer, which isn't surprising. But what's surprising and even haunting is what he prayed. Who's the them? 
the soldiers who tortured him, crucified him, who were getting ready to gamble for his clothes? Or was the them the jeering and mocking crowd who had turned on him? Is the them the religious leaders, the Jewish people of God, religious leaders who conspired to kill him? He prayed for these hypocrites. Can you imagine that Jesus would pray for them as he hung on the cross? Never praying for himself. Never forget that image. But there's, I think, somebody else he was praying for. As he said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. I think he was praying for us. Like the old spiritual, were you there when they crucified my Lord? The answer is yes. In a profound spiritual sense, you and I were there. The death of Jesus was an event that transcended time. His words here verbalize what he was doing on the cross. He was offering himself to God. His father as a substitutionary atonement. He was the high priest and he was the offering itself. And in a spiritual sense, he was saying, Father, forgive Matt. Forgive every name here. Forgive those of us in church and those of us on the streets, those of us in the suburbs, those of us on the farms, those of us in the cities. Forgive them on every continent. Jesus prayed for every single person to, uh, in the human race to be forgiven and made right with God. And we need it. Sin is a real struggle. And even before we repented, Jesus was praying from the cross. Jesus, here's the thing that I think we need to remember. Jesus wasn't just the messenger, which a lot of Christian churches say. He's the messenger. He told, taught great teachings of how to live life. Jesus wasn't just the messenger. Jesus was, yeah. Yeah. Every part of his life was God's word. He was different from all other religious, religious leaders. They all pointed to God. Did you ever notice that? Jesus didn't point to God so much. He pointed to himself. He is the message. And on the cross, the sins of the world were placed on the Lamb of God who takes away. We see the costliness of grace. It's not free. It's not cheap. It's the ultimate sacrifice. You know, soldiers die in battle. And um, I know we have veterans here at camp. And some of the soldiers give their lives to save another, which is a whole nother level of sacrifice. By jumping on a grenade, for example. And the survivors talk about, um, for the rest of their lives, they say things like this, I feel like I'm living for two people. I will never, never forget the sacrifice that he made on my behalf. That's how Christians feel. That's why we can even say in Christ alone. That's how Christians feel in the death of Jesus. That all of their sin and junk would be on their shoulders and he would, he would take the demands of justice. That the guilty parties like you and me would be set free. And once you get this settled in your life, there's this huge, this huge exhale. And you go, I have this peace that passes human understanding. I'm heaven bound on the merits of another. My sins are forgiven on the merits of another. I have his presence and his power in my life because he was resurrected on the third day. And he lives in me 
now. And he lives through me now. You know, there's an old saying that says, victors can afford to be generous. And in Christ alone, we have this victory. And when we get that, we don't have to be stingy with our praise. We don't have to be stingy with our future, with our resources, with um, our friendships. Because we've been given the victory at a very costly price that's completely free to us. Before we even knew it, we just received by, gra by faith alone the grace that comes from Christ alone. And we know this because of uh, Scripture alone and the witness of those whose lives it's touched. Christ alone. We should have sung that song, but I didn't have my act together in time to get the PowerPoint up and all that. Not that we don't know most of the verses. Well, tomorrow we're going to kind of look at the fifth of the solos, which is for the glory of God alone. The reason for all this. It's going to be kind of interesting. But I also want to touch on something that's called the priesthood of all believers, because that was this huge idea that you can... Martin Luther said, you can be a milkmaid glorifying God as you milk the cows. You don't just have to be a priest serving in a church or a monk serving in a monastery or a nun serving in a convent to be a full member of the body of Christ. Let's pray.